The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's open our Bibles to both Matthew and Luke. Matthew 1, put your finger there, and in Luke chapter 1, put your finger there. We're not going to do an exposition of both of these. We're going to consider some key verses in each one of these. And our subject is the fact, as the Apostle Creed says it, Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And actually, we're breaking that apart from the next phrase, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. So next week, Pastor York is going to talk about the humanity of Christ and his coming and his birth. This evening, we're looking more exclusively at this very narrow area of his miraculous conception. And so, uh, let's look at God's Word in both Matthew and Luke. Matthew tells the, the birth narrative It's talking from Joseph's perspective primarily and what he experienced. Matthew chapter 1 at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And then from the Gospel of Luke, at verse 26, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, commonly called the virgin birth, even though the real miracle of it was not his birth. That was a typical human birth. The miracle of the virgin birth we might call the virgin conception or the miraculous conception. And so as I preach tonight, I'm using the the terms virgin birth, virgin conception, miraculous conception, all to speak of the same thing. This miraculous supernatural act of God by which Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Spirit without a human father. If I were to ask you, would you have thought up the plan of salvation if you didn't know what the Bible said? I think we would all have to say, no. It's beyond our wildest imagination. It's not the way any human being would invent a plan of coming to God. All the religions in the world except Christianity invent plans of coming to God, which have to do with man working his way to God, man earning something from God in some way. And so the doctrine of the virgin birth is something that is given by revelation from God. It's recorded for us here, highlighted in both Matthew, where we're told that before they came together, before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 1.18 has the virgin birth or the virgin conception very clearly. And then in Luke, in a number of verses, we find it as well, as we've just read. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The deity of Christ is proclaimed in many passages in Scripture, but it's only in Matthew and Luke that we learn of this amazing supernatural conception of Christ. The Gospel of John does not speak of it in the same way because John approaches the subject in an entirely different way in terms of the pre-existing Son of God and the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So John does not describe the infancy narrative in that way as, as Matthew does from Joseph's perspective or Luke from Mary's perspective. And Mark doesn't describe the infancy narrative at all. He just begins his gospel with Jesus as a man preaching the gospel. I'd like to divide our sermon primarily into doctrinal points, the doctrinal significance of the virgin birth, and I hope that you will follow me through a number of brief points about what the virgin birth or the virgin conception of Christ teaches us, and then two applications of this to our lives. And so, follow me with me on these points. The first doctrinal importance of the virgin birth is this. The virgin birth or the virgin conception shows that salvation is of the Lord. The fact that Jesus was conceived and came in this way shows that salvation is of the Lord. 
that salvation ultimately was, must come from the Lord. It is not the doing of human beings. From Genesis 3.15 onward, Genesis 3.15, where the prophecy came to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would ultimately destroy the serpent, God brought this salvation about by His own power, not through human effort. And the virgin conception or the virgin birth of Christ is a powerful reminder, an example, we might say, of this overarching fact that salvation is of the Lord. We might just stop here and ask, what is your conception of how salvation takes place? Christians should know and believe that salvation is totally of the Lord. Yes, we are called to respond through faith and repentance, but even faith, we're told in Ephesians 2, is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is of the Lord. And, and what a freeing and liberating truth this is to know that it is the Lord who is the one who saves. And so the history of salvation from beginning to end is the history of God intervening in human history for God providentially working out His purposes of redemption throughout history, all the way from the time of Adam and Eve up until now, but climaxing and culminating in the first coming of Christ, Jesus Christ coming, and then finally His return. Salvation is of the Lord. The virgin birth teaches us that. Secondly, the virgin birth makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. The virgin birth makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Now, we are not saying that the virgin conception of Christ caused Christ's sinlessness. We are treading on deep mystery here. And Theologians are, are wary about what they say about this, but in Luke one thirty five, when Mary asked the angel about how this will be, since she is a virgin, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The angel is describing, further answering Mary's question about this. And this is all shrouded in deep mystery about how this exactly occurred biologically. We just know that the Bible tells us it happened. But clearly there's a link here between the way Jesus was conceived and His holiness. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. There's a connection to His holiness and His deity, the Son of God. We do not know exactly how God did this, but it seems to be implied that Christ's holiness was somehow linked to His manner of conception. Now, theologians debate this and discuss this, the possibility that the, that the legal inherited guilt of Adam and the moral corruption of Adam's race was not passed on to Christ because he did not have a human father. 
But then the problem is that he had a human mother who was bearing the inherited guilt of Adam and the sin and corruption of Adam as well. So that doesn't completely make sense. So theologians debate this. We may not know how or why exactly, but the Scripture clearly links the holiness of Jesus and His deity, Son of God, with the virgin birth. Listen how two theologians speak about this. One is John Calvin, who this is a sentence or two from him. We make Christ free of all stain, in other words, sinless. We believe Christ is free of all stain, or how did this take place? Not just because he was begotten of his mother without a man. Calvin is saying it wasn't just because the virgin birth, but because he was sanctified by the Spirit that the generation might be pure and undefiled, as would have been true before Adam's fall. Calvin's saying it wasn't just because of the virgin conception of Christ, but it was also because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. John Murray says it this way, Jesus' preservation from sin may reside entirely in the supernatural begetting. In other words, Murray is saying it may be from the virgin birth entirely, for it may be that depravity is conveyed in natural generation. But he goes on to say, yet it may not be correct to find the whole explanation of Jesus' sinlessness in the absence of natural begetting. So it may well be that preservation from the stain of sin required another supernatural factor, namely the preservation from conception to birth of the infant Jesus from the contamination that would otherwise have proceeded from his human mother. Murray is saying it may be that the virgin birth did this and produced holiness in this way as a human being being able to be born without sin, but he's saying it very well may be that God had to supernaturally preserve him as well. In other words, he's saying pretty much the same thing that John Calvin said. We may not know how or why, but the Scripture links these. And clearly, what we find in our text, that Jesus was both God and man, and Jesus was holy. He was without sin. Here's our third point. And don't get lost in these. There are not too many of them. They're not too hard. The virgin birth of Christ was not the efficient cause or source of Jesus' deity. The virgin conception wasn't the cause of Jesus' deity. Doesn't that make sense? The virgin conception of Christ wasn't the source of Jesus' deity. In other words, the virgin conception wasn't the ultimate reason that Jesus was God. To think about this this way would be to lower the idea of what Jesus' deity meant. Think of it this way. This is an illustration that's just from me, or thinking from me, so it's no theologian saying this, but would it have been possible for God to bring about a virgin birth of a baby and for the child to be only human? Yes. I think that's possible that God could do that. If God could create Adam from the dust of the ground, if God could create Eve from Adam's rib, 
God could have, he did never do this, he could have created a human being from a virgin birth. He didn't do that, but he could have. In other words, you see what I'm saying? A virgin birth in and of itself isn't the ultimate reason why Jesus was the God-man. It's closely linked to that, but it wasn't the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason, and probably some of you are worried, what's pastor saying here? But let me, let me finish this point. The ultimate ground or the ultimate reason for Jesus' deity is that as the eternally existing Son of God, He was God. He was God. It wasn't the virgin birth. It wasn't the virgin conception that made Jesus God. It linked, I'm getting ahead of myself on my points, it linked the deity, Jesus as God, with His human nature. But the virgin conception wasn't the reason for the deity. He was truly and fully God apart from and prior to His virgin conception in Mary's womb. So the virgin conception is closely linked to Jesus' deity, but it wasn't the cause of Jesus' deity in the ultimate sense. And so, this is kind of the culminating point. The virgin birth, number four, the virgin birth was the means by which God became man. The virgin birth was the means by which God became man. The virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person, two natures with the nature of God and the nature of man, and united in one person, the God-man. This supernatural conception, this virgin conception of Jesus was the means God used to send His Son into the world as a man. Theologians debate other possible ways God could have done this. Of course, it's speculative. Someone has said, written, God could have created Jesus as a man in heaven, created Him as a human being, linked Him to His deity in heaven, and sent Him down to earth. But then it would have been hard for us as human beings to see Him as fully human, since he wouldn't have been born, since he wouldn't have descended from Adam. Of course, that's a great speculation, but, you know, who knows what God could have done. Or, on the other hand, God might somehow have had the eternal Son of God come into the world with a human mother and father, both, and somehow unite the divine nature of Christ to the human nature of Christ at conception. Again, this is very speculative to talk about this. But then we would have struggled to believe in the deity of Christ. Of course, it's pure speculation, and God didn't do it that way, and we don't even know how God did it the way Scripture tells us He did it. We just know He did. Revelation tells us this. The virgin conception, the virgin birth of Christ, answers the question that many people have, many young Christians have, and that is, if Jesus is the God-man… How did this occur? The virgin birth is the answer. Luke 1, Matthew 1. Mary didn't understand this. The angel answered her. The Holy Spirit reveals as much as we as Christians need to know, but we don't need to know beyond that. The 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel said, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The virgin birth, the doctrine of the virgin birth, what the Bible has revealed is sufficient for us to know how, in a sense, even though we don't know completely how all this worked, we know how God came in the flesh. It's a deep mystery, yet clearly this is the way God chose to work. One author writes about it this way, when we penetrate to the mysterious and marvelous primary person of the miracle, I think we must conclude that both Matthew and Mark intend that we should understand before everything else that by means of the virgin conception, the preexistent Word became flesh, John 1.14. Mary's virginal conception, in other words, was the means whereby God became man, the means whereby he who was rich for our sakes became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. My fifth point and the last theological point is briefly this. The miraculous conception of Jesus Christ shows that nothing is impossible with God. The world scoffs at the virgin birth. The world scorns this idea that Mary conceived Jesus without a human father. But that's clearly what the Bible says. And it underlines this great truth of Scripture that nothing is impossible with God, that God will certainly perform all His promises. The entire infancy narrative in Luke, and, and it's pretty long, the narrative about Christ coming into the world in the Gospel of Luke, that's the longest narrative. Matthew isn't as long as Luke. The whole narrative in Luke stresses the fact that God completes His promises. The nation had been waiting for their Messiah for over 400 years. There was this period of darkness and waiting, and finally, onto the scene bursts these announcements, these angelic announcements about this coming Messiah, and Jesus comes in the flesh. God had not forsaken His promises. He will do it at His own time and in His own way, but what He has promised God will certainly bring to pass. I hope that we see that the virgin birth of Christ strongly underlines that with God nothing is impossible. Well, two applications to draw from this. The first is this, Jesus is who the Bible says He is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God-man. You may be wrestling with many things in the Bible or in Christianity. Maybe you're struggling with many doubts. Maybe you're just wrestling with alleged difficulties in the Bible. In Sunday school class today, in the Standing on the Rock class, we talked about all these alleged difficulties in the Bible, in the text, you know, things that seem to contradict one another in the Bible and so forth. And we also mentioned briefly there are lots of theological difficulties as well. Why would God allow suffering? Why would a good God send anyone to hell? How could this be? And why would Jesus be the only way? Couldn't there be many ways to God? 
Maybe you're wrestling with a lot of, of theological questions or doubts, even doubts about whether the promises of God are true for you. And you may look around you and see many failings in the church and many problems with Christians you know, and they don't live up to what you think Christians should be. But Jesus is who the Bible says He is. And God calls you to come to grips with the person of Jesus Christ. God has made Him known. He has clearly revealed it. He has declared who Jesus Christ is to the world. The gospel has gone out into the world. The Bible is true. And the virgin conception of Christ is a trumpet blast declaring Jesus Christ is unique. Jesus Christ came to this earth in a unique way. No person has ever come to the earth this way, and no person has so profoundly affected the history of the world. No person ever lived such a life as Jesus lived, a sinless life, showing us who God is. No person has ever died such a death as Jesus died for our sins. No person ever rose from the dead as Jesus did and ascended at the right hand of God and lives and reigns forever. And so the application is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? What have you done with Jesus Christ? You can, you can hold up obstacles of theology and questions that aren't fully answered in your mind. You can probably rightly point to lots of problems and sins with people in the church and the church itself. But on that last judgment day, the question that is going to be before you as you stand before God is, what have you done with Jesus Christ, the God-man? The other application that I want to draw is when we link this miraculous conception of Jesus Christ to the lowly setting of Mary. If you think of the Gospel of Luke and you think of the lowliness of Mary, a woman in a society where women were on the bottom rung, so to speak, not like Zechariah, the angel came to Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem at the center of Israelite culture. No, Gabriel came to Mary in the far north, in the outer fringes of Israel, so to speak, in this poor farming community, this girl who could have been just 13 or so years old, and announces this miraculous coming of Jesus in the flesh through her. And in this, the very character of God shows up, that God shows His greatness and His glory by working His will through those who are lowly in this world those who are humble in this world, and those who are humble before God and trust in Him, as Mary did. The humble setting of the announcement to Mary tells us something of the grace of God to those who are lowly. And Mary is highly favored by God, but that doesn't mean that she deserves something from God. She was highly favored in that she receives God's God's grace on the basis of God's sovereign action. He favors her. It's God's grace. And so he brings about this miraculous conception of Christ. The humble setting of Jesus' birth reveals the character of God's heart. Scripture says that God draws near to those who are of a humble and contrite spirit. 
We might tend to think that God would choose to work through the great of this world, but God shows His greatness by working through the humble and lowly. It's very rare that God works through the rich and the great and the celebrities of this world. God is at work through the humble. And Mary's response to this favor of God shows and reflects the proper response of all of those who are called by God, who are humbled by God, who are trusting in God. And so, what an example to us as we close to think about responding as Mary did. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, she says. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary had no credentials other than availability and a responsive heart. She is the Lord's servant, she says. Here I am. You can imagine this 14-year-old girl just saying, Lord, so be it to me according to your will. God's servants have the right attitude and perspective to accomplish great things for God if they say, use me as you will. I will not refrain from serving because I do not feel qualified or able or great enough to do this. No, use me as I trust wholly in you. And as we all consider this amazing supernatural conception of Jesus Christ and Mary's response, there's a practical conclusion that as we see God at work in the lowly setting involving Mary, that we would likewise respond to the grace of God in our life. The M&A director who gave this training in ESL this weekend had an interesting story. She, would, she began by saying, you may think that I am someone great because I'm the M&A director of ESL in the United States. But she said, all the conceptions you have of me probably are wrong. You might think, well, if you're the director of ESL, you must be fluent in many foreign languages. No, she's not. Or, obviously, you've taught ESL for years. She taught a little bit, but not for long. She was the director of ESL in her church then, but she actually rather, would rather be the director than teach although she does know how to teach. So people say to her, well, you must have been raised in a multicultural environment growing up with all different ethnic groups. And she said, no, my father was a card-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. And you would not have been invited into our house unless you were lily white. And so she stood before us and said, really, All the misconceptions you would have about someone who might be used by God to be working across the United States to develop English as a second language ministry, none of those are true for me. And then she spent the next 12 hours just telling story after story after story. And those of you who were here to to hear her knew that even though it was interesting to know how ESL is taught and everything, the amazing part of her presentation is just how God has used English as a second language at Chapel Gate PCA Church in touching human beings with the gospel. And my whole thought the whole time was just how unlikely a person. You would never know it if she walked down the hall. We all just went out of there with our heads spinning how the great things of God this woman has been used to bring them about. And so the virgin birth of Christ, salvation is of the Lord. Have you come to grips with who Jesus Christ is? And if you have, are you humbling yourself before God and trusting in Him to be used by Him in whatever He's calling you to do, 
this day, this week, this year. May you do it to the glory of God. Amen. Father, these things about the Word made flesh are deep mystery. We can only understand so far. And beyond that line of the revelation of your Word, we cannot go. And so we take these truths with trembling, with adoration before you, rejoicing that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And thank you that now we behold the glory of Jesus Christ recorded in Scripture for us. Help us to meditate on the beauty and the glory and the love and the holiness of Jesus Christ this week and be transformed by your power as we look at Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. So we ask these things in his name. Amen.